Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. I believe the Lord would say to some people here that it's time to draw a line in the sand and declare that you are not turning back. That you've tried to keep one foot in the world and one in the kingdom of God. That you've wandered, waffled back and forth. But it's time for you to decide. To declare this day, whom will you serve? Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is that your declaration? Lord, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to all of us, that we would declare we believe and that we walk with you. We began this series last week entitled Believe Again. It's a th the third in the Again series, from Begin Again to Belong Again to Believe Again, none of which were originally a plan to be a sequence, but here we are. And really, we were talking about believing again from the standpoint of we live in a culture in which there is so much confusion there seem to be more lies perpetrated than I've ever encountered in my entire life. More uncertainty about what people believe. In fact, there seems to be new uncertainty, new confusion that arises every day. And I do believe that every person who has decided, who has encountered Christ, who believes, must firmly decide where they stand and what they will believe each and every day because who you are as a person is a function of what you have believed up to this point and what will happen in your life is a function of what you believe here and in the days ahead and so sometimes a small change in what you believe and how you'll go about living will have an enormous impact on who you will believe who you will be years down the road and so it is critical that you decide what you believe. And so we were talking about this last week in the context of the Nicene Creed. We're not a creedal church. We don't emphasize creeds. We don't expect you to memorize them and recite them, things like that. But the reason I talked about the Nicene Creed is it's the only really sound doctrinal belief that I know of that is agreed upon across all different segments of Christianity. The Catholics, the Orthodox, the Protestants accept the Nicene Creed because it's foundational. And pretty much to not accept the foundational things in the Nicene Creed is to step outside of what is real Christian truth and doctrine. And so we indicated that the first statement in that creed is we believe in God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things that are seen and unseen. 
And so we began last week by talking about the idea that there is one God. Now, to some of you, that may not seem like an extraordinary concept. In other words, if you grew up as a Baptist in East Tennessee and, and you always understood God, you probably thought in terms of one God, and that was good. But the rest of the world has had much other confusion and different perspectives on the idea of God. Because in ancient times, there were polytheistic cultures that believed in many gods, like the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians. And today, there are likewise people who believe there are many gods. The biggest example is Hinduism. You can have thousands of gods in Hinduism. And yet to declare that there is one true God is really a polarizing statement because in today's culture, it's fine to talk about spiritual things, mystical things, and to accept the idea that there are many avenues, many paths to find God or the gods. But to declare that there is one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, who rules and reigns above all things, and that there is one way unto God, now that is something that in today's culture is quite objectionable. Yet it is simply a declaration of the truth, a declaration that the church has made for centuries upon centuries. That there is one true God, and it originates from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The scripture we looked at last week in Mark is where Jesus was asked about what is the greatest commandment. And of course, we know that he went on to say that the greatest commandment is to love God and then to love your neighbor. But in a preface to that, he said, hear, O Israel. What he's doing is quoting Deuteronomy. In fact, this is one of the things that you and I need to keep in mind is that Jesus often quoted the Old Testament. And those today who would want to abandon the Old Testament and say that Christianity needs to reinvent itself with a, a different perspective are misunderstanding the work of Jesus himself, that he affirmed the Old Testament over and over and over, not only by his word, but certainly by his deed, because he fulfilled countless prophecies of the Old Testament. And as I've said before, you cannot understand who Jesus is apart from understanding the Old Testament. And so Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy and said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one that there is one true God. And in Old Testament days, there were the pagan cultures around the Israelites that had false gods that they would worship, like the god Ashtoreth and things of that nature that people would set up altars and worship. And the declaration of Christianity is that there is one God. We are to love him. And if you love him, then he will teach you to love your neighbor because really, if you love God and seek after him, inevitably what he does is teach you, give you the capacity through the power of the Holy Spirit to love people around you. And it's remarkable, really, because all of us are fallen. All of us have difficulties. There's no person that is perfectly easy to love. Yet, what he does is give us the capacity to love even our enemies. And this is the declaration that there's one God who does this. And then what we also talked about last week is that he is the Father. The, the statement in, in Ephesians is that there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is Father 
of all. That God chose to create this world where there is man and woman, where there are fathers and mothers. He chose to do it that way in his infinite wisdom to teach us about his love, his nature, about relationships. And he chose to reveal himself in the form of a man and to declare God the Father, God the Son. And in this unique relationship of God as Father, we have some understanding of him. Now, I talked last week about if you had a father who was a great father, a loving father, then your view of who God the the heavenly father is is probably pretty healthy, but there's no perfect earthly fathers. Every child needs to forgive their parents because there are no perfect parents. I asked my children to forgive me for the places where I made mistakes. And so what God wants to do is teach you about what a perfect father is. So even if you had a great father, he wants to fill in the areas where you didn't understand as well. He wants you to understand a true, loving, perfect father who will never leave you, never forsake you, never let you down, who's with you through thick and thin. And then what he wants to do for those who've had really difficult backgrounds where you didn't have a father who loved you, maybe one who abused you, one who neglected you. I've known stories of people who had a father who seemed to be there and did a pretty good job for a few years and then checked out. Sometimes just abandoned, sometimes checked out by just being uninvolved. And see, if your view of God is skewed by an earthly father who did not represent God the Father very well, God really wants to first heal the wounds in your heart. There are a lot of people with father wounds. If that's you, the first step toward finding healing is acknowledging the wounds and then making the choice to say, Lord, I forgive. And then invite God the Father to reveal to you what is a true father? What is a real father? And it's amazing how he'll do that. Maybe for some of you it's a mother wound and he does the same thing there. But he will reveal to you what it really means. And then if you're a young person and you've got your own children, he can heal the wounds in your heart in order to teach you how to be a godly parent to those children. In fact, maybe you're in a family where there's been generations of problems. But I believe any generation can be the generation that stands up and breaks the bondage, the chain of sin, and changes the whole course of everything thereafter. Maybe that's the call upon you. Now, of course, we want to continue in this Believe Again series. We'll probably do so for a long, long time. Given my track record, it could be an extensively long time. But where we want to go this week is just in the very next statement where the creed says that he's the maker of heaven and earth. And so in Genesis, this is the declaration that is found from the beginning to the end, from the Alpha to the Omega in Scripture that God created. The very first statement is that in the beginning, God created. Now, before I became a Christian, 
the idea that God created was not a concept that was really upon my mind. Perhaps I had heard someone state this scripture, but it didn't register in my mind. But the, I've mentioned before that I can remember the first time that I acknowledged there must be a God. And it was when I was in college in a philosophy class. And so many young people in philosophy classes are the places where their faith falls apart. Well, for me, I had no faith. And I remember coming to the conclusion that there must be a God because there had to be a starting point. Now, that wasn't the point at which I came to faith. It was years later. But at that point, I just remember simply thinking in my mind, there must be a God. I didn't know who he was, what he was, because there had to be a starting point. And see, even today, if you are an avowed atheist and you believe we're here simply by the Big Bang and we evolved, the question arises is, why did it start? And even the big, game, big Bang, where did the material come from that caused the Big Bang? There had to be some origination, some starting point. And this is the declaration of Scripture in Genesis. It's throughout the Old Testament, like in Isaiah. He says, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And you can find this in several places in the book of Job. You know, Job wanted an audience with God. When he finally got an audience with God, God simply said, I have a few questions for you. Like, where were you when I stretched out the heavens? Or where were you when I marked off the divisions of the seas? And you see, it's true that there had to be one who created all things. There's a professor. He was at Lehigh University years ago. I don't know if he still is. His name was Michael Behe. He wrote a book entitled Intelligent Design. And his basic argument was, he was a biology professor, if I remember correctly, his basic argument was there had to be an intelligent designer. That the, the perfection of the world, the intricacy, the, the creative genius of it all shows that there is one of enormous intelligence who must have created all things. Even in ancient Greek philosophy, there was the idea that that the world was mathematically perfect and there had to be a mathematically perfect designer. Now, they didn't acknowledge the one true God, but they came to the conclusion philosophically there had to be one who originated, who created. And so you can go all the way to the very end of the scripture in Revelation. It says the same thing, that you are there, there's those worshiping around the throne and John sees this vision and they're saying you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being in fact the scripture says elsewhere that in him we live and move and have our being it is the most astounding thing I think to recognize that you are a created being it's hard to grasp. When you're living life and you feel like you're in control and you've got things going your way, it's hard to grasp that at one point you did not exist. Just did not exist in this realm. And do you realize, you ever think about that, say, 150 years from now, it is likely that none of us will exist in this realm. 
that you are for a season a created being with appointed purposes. Now, I absolutely believe God created all things, including you and me. When we were doing the chaos series, I took an entire teaching, and Dr. West, who has a PhD in biochemistry, shared with me that weekend that he and I both came from the same background. That is, that we learned evolution in school. We assumed it was true. We had no reason to think otherwise until such time as we began to question and look differently. And so once I began to study and really look into it, I began to think, well, what is the evidence of this? And then you start to get, be faced with some questions that are basically insurmountable. That's what Michael Behe posed. Like, for example, what we know today, evolution ideas have been around for a long time, but the DNA research of the last, say, 70 years has really revealed that the perfection of the information necessary in every single being. That, to me, the DNA code alone says there is one who created just as we are according to our kind, that we didn't evolve gradually from the primordial slime. Then there are many other questions. Anybody who's an avowed evolutionist simply say, well, present the evidence. Tell me why. And there is a dearth in that regard, because then you have the question of irreducible complexity. How could a being live with a partially developed lung or heart or liver or any of those things? It's all got to be there in function in order to survive. Then there's the problem of the fossil record. There should be millions upon millions of transitional fossils if we evolved. They aren't there. There's the sudden explosion of fossils that are complete. When, you're, when they're there, which to me gives evidence of a worldwide catastrophe, such as a flood. Then Dr. West talked about the mathematical impossibilities of what has occurred. Then you look at the, the world, how it's created with such perfection. Like, you know, minor changes in the world's environment means that we all cease to exist. If we were just a fraction closer to the sun or a fraction further away, that this world is created for life as we know it. It's the creative genius of God. Now, why is that so critical? Because if you believe we're here by random chance, then I would say if that is true, life has no inherent purpose. There is nothing that is morally right or morally wrong. If we are here by random chance, there is nothing that is morally right or morally wrong. But if we are here created by a living God, then that means that every single life is of utmost value. Every single life is created in his image. Every person matters. No person is expendable. Far too many tyrants in history and still today have looked at human life as just a utilitarian tool to use for their gain. And that life was expendable. But you see, when you realize that life is created in the image of God, then every life is of utmost value. And there is something that is morally right and morally wrong. Many things, because what is, in a, what is a violation of the holiness of God, that is morally wrong. And people, even people who are atheists, they'll take strong, strong stands about some things being right and wrong. Well, if there is no God, you have no ground upon which to stand. 
But if there's one who created all things, including you, there are things that are inherently right and wrong. We know as, from a Christian standpoint that that is true because God has written the law, the moral law, on your heart. And you know that there are things that are inherently wrong and inherently right. And see, people, even people who don't recognize God but have some belief that there's an afterlife, hope that their good will outweigh their bad. Well, why would you even be concerned about it unless you knew inherently that something was right and something was wrong? The problem is for every person that there is, it's an impossibility that your good will outweigh your bad because one scar of sin mars the entire image of God and therefore every person needs forgiveness because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God then the next declaration in the Nicene Creed is that he is the creator of all things the maker of everything seen and unseen in Colossians it says that this is referring to Jesus that he is the invisible the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation that doesn't mean that he's a created being we're going to come to that later Firstborn means first in priority. That he's the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Where the thrones are powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him. All things are held together in him. Now really, when you stop and think about it, there is a lot about this world that is the unseen world. Even when we look at people, the scripture says that man looks at what? Man looks at the outside, the appearance of people, but God looks at the heart. And so when you encounter people, you can have conversations with them, but do you really know what's in them? The unseen part. I mean, even if you're married to somebody, you only know a fraction of their thoughts well, I know some of you are married to somebody that tells you almost everything that they think, but, but that's a little different. You know what I'm saying? I won't ask for anybody to raise your hands, but I know a few of them are going, yeah, yeah, I know everything. But you see, there's a lot of unseen about the inner person, but God sees it all. There's a lot unseen about the world in which we live. Because the scripture talks about that, like in, in Revelation, where John said he was lifted up to the third heaven. Well, the, the first heaven is just what we can see, the, the skies and so forth around us. The second heaven is where there's a spiritual battle going on, where the angelic and the demonic are at work. The unseen part of that. And then there's the heavenly realm that none of us have seen yet, unless you've had an extraordinary vision, like John did. But it's our eternal destiny. And you see, God created everything, seen and unseen. In Hebrews it says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In fact, even from a scientific perspective, it seems that there's just this little tiny beginning point that exploded and that it's been God's creation, his power, his spoken word brought it into being. 
It's interesting that the scripture says in the first chapter of John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it's referring to Jesus as the incarnate Word. See, a Word is something that is visible, that can be seen, that communicates information to you. Well, Jesus is the eternal word, the eternal communication of who God the Father is. And he made his dwelling among us. But words are powerful. The word of God spoken from his, from his very voice is extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful. See, the scripture talks about the rhema word of God and the logos word of God. The logos word of God is like the written word, the visible word. The rhema word of God is the spoken word of God. And the word of God is powerful. And that's what Hebrews declares is that by his command, by his word, he formed the world. See, if you and I could grasp, if we could get an understanding of, of who God is from that standpoint, that he's the creator of all things, that by his spoken word he, he creates, we would fall on our faces before him. That every inkling of pride would be vanished in us because there is nothing by which we could have pride in comparison to the one who created all things. Now, part of the creation, in some ways, is very hard to understand because in Revelation it says that there was war in heaven, that Michael and his angels, that there are angels who work, who serve God and serve humanity, that they fought against the dragon, it refers to. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, that is, the dragon was not, and they lost their place in heaven. What is being described here in the book of Revelation is this conflict. It was a rebellion by Satan and those who followed him against God the Father. And then the result was that the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray. That he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. That he was cast from the heavenly realm. That God's judgment upon him was to cast him to this world. Now, it's a, a clear question of why didn't he hurl him on past here to Saturn and let us stay here? I mean, really. Because there is the very clear question of, well, why did God even permit the possibility of rebellion in heaven? Why then did he allow the demonic to have some authority, a lot of authority, because the scripture says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Why did he allow that realm to have authority in the world in which you and I live? And in many respects, the answer from my standpoint is, I don't know. The only conjecture I can make is what I've talked about a number of times where I believe that God has created a world that is perfect for its purpose. A world in which you can really make choices that matter eternally. A world in which you can see the reality of the creative hand of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, at the same time, simultaneously, all around you, is the clear representation of what it means to rebel against God, live outside of his will, and evil. 
We live in a world where good and evil are simultaneously on display. And this is why, like what I was talking about when I was praying, where Joshua said, for choose whom you will serve. In this world, you must choose whom you will serve. And see, many people are serving the flesh. In so doing, you're serving the demonic. You either choose, will I serve the living God or will I serve my flesh and evil? And see, I believe this is the eternal choice that God has set before us, why this world has purpose, why choices matter. The choices you make really matter, both now and eternally. When the scripture says you reap what you sow, is that not the evidence of life? Anybody who's lived a few decades know that it is absolutely true. And if it's true in this realm, it's going to be true eternally. And so I believe that God has allowed evil into this realm at the same place where he has created us because he has eternal purposes in doing so. And his eternal purpose primarily for you is what? It is that you would be created into the image of Christ. And so what he's done is create a world in which evil is around us, but he is using it for his purposes to recreate you and I into his image. That his goal is to make you like Christ to prepare you for eternity. And see, the vast majority of the population in this country and probably in the rest of the world does not understand the goal of human life. The goal is to be created in the image of the living God, in the image of Christ. And when you understand that's the goal, a lot about this world makes sense. In fact, one of the reasons I believe God is creator is I look at the world and the only world view that gives me some sense of coherent understanding of why we're here is Christianity. That every other worldview falls short of an understanding of how this world works and what its purpose is. And so there is really unseen darkness and therefore in Ephesians it says that we are to be strong in the Lord, put on the full armor of God and take our stand against the devil's schemes that I absolutely believe the demonic is real. If you're brand new here, then that might be a, a bit of a new concept to you. But if you've been here for years, you know that I've talked about it often. I think we live in a spiritual battle, that we have weapons of warfare, where it talks about the armor of God. The Spirit of God dwelling in us gives us the capacity to stand in the battle for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, authorities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, there are those in seminaries and other academic circles who dismiss all of that and say, well, all the things about the demonic written in the scriptures are just because they didn't have understanding as we have it today in our enlightened minds. Do you know what my intellectual response to that is? Hogwash. Some of you may not be familiar with that term, but it basically means that's foolishness. That the evidence of the spiritual battle is all around us. The scripture says that Satan seeks whom he may devour to kill, steal, and destroy. Well, look at how many human lives are being devoured day after day after day after day. 
by those who submit to darkness. And it's on the macro level of the evil of war and destruction and all the things that go along with that, or it's at the micro level of one life at a time being destroyed, whether by addiction or bondage or something else. That you and I are to take our stand and recognize we're in a spiritual battle. One of the gifts of the Spirit is referred to as discerning of spirits. I believe God gives understanding to people by way of the Holy Spirit about demonic spirits that have authority in people. And so that he gives you that understanding so that you might pray that they be set free. And there are a lot of people who, some people are possessed, but more, I would say, are oppressed or have some stronghold of the demonic. Like at all the sexual perversion in our world today, that there is something demonic, a demonic spirit of sexual perversion behind it. You look at the Old Testament, the same kinds of things were going on then. I mentioned the goddess Ashtoreth is the goddess of sexual immorality. People worshiped it in the Old Testament. Well, we worship it in our society today in countless ways. And some people are worshiping at the, at the altar of sexual perversion. They're worshiping the demonic. But there are many, many other types of strongholds. For some, it's strongholds of fear, strongholds of infirmity or death. For others, it's strongholds of greed or lying. You meet a person who lies repetitively, they have a stronghold. It needs to be broken. Now, the way to break any stronghold is like what I was referring to earlier about it's the same process as finding healing from a wound. First, you have to acknowledge it. It's like an alcoholic whose first choice must be to admit, I have a problem. If you were ever to go to an AA class, you know that people there will start out by saying, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Or if it's a different type of addiction, whatever that is. When we did Celebrate Recovery here years ago, it was based on the AA model. The guy who started it himself had been an alcoholic, been to AA, then he started Celebrate Recovery from a Christian standpoint. But they used that very same model of where a person was going to speak, they'd stand up and say, hi, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. And I kept going to our, our Celebrate Recovery classes, and finally I said to Roger, who was leading that, I said, that has to stop. Because you see, the first step is to acknowledge that I'm an alcoholic. But once I've acknowledged it, and I've invited Christ to come in and bring, bring healing, my identity is not a, that of an alcoholic. I am a new creation in Christ. And see, first I admit it, I encounter Christ, allow him to bring healing in it, and then I start admitting my new identity is not that old person who was an alcoholic, it's who I am in Christ. And with any bondage, whatever it is, See, you must first admit it to yourself, but then in order to find healing, you're going to likely have to admit it to somebody else. The scripture says, pray with one another that you be healed. Well, you, the preface to that is confess your sins and pray to one another that you be healed. Well, in order for you to find healing, you're going to have to confess it, confront it. You're going to have to invite other people in to pray with you, to help you. And there is a great freedom in just bringing whatever your bondage is out in the open. And see, if that's you, if you've got a bondage, you know it, it's there, it's locked away in your closet, and you think nobody knows, well, God knows. 
And the way to find healing is to confront it, bring it out into the open, confess it to somebody that you can trust, not to the whole world. Sometimes people unwisely confess in ways that I think are very damaging. You confess to somebody that you can trust, invite them in prayer with you, and then you start making practical steps to break free from that bondage. You don't just continue in it and say, God, deliver me from it. You have to, he, he works with your will. You have to make choices to be free. But he, set, he will set you free. There are lots of people in this church who would give you testimonies about being set free from some type of bondage. And see, oftentimes what's driving a bondage is something demonic. It is a war against the darkness. And sometimes your bondage becomes your companion but it will kill you. It will destroy you. So I absolutely believe that God is maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. That ultimately, what is unseen now will become a reality to us, and that is the new heaven and the new earth. The scripture says that no eye has beheld what God has in store for those who trust him, who love him. That what was totally unseen to you before you were born was this world. What's unseen to you now, even though you have been born again, hopefully, if you haven't come to know Christ, then the, the days are urgent. If you don't know Christ yet, it is a time to invite him into your life, ask him to forgive you of your sins, that you might have new life. Then when you encounter him and he comes to dwell with you, he gives you an understanding that there is life after death, the unseen world of heaven that we have not seen will become real. Now the scripture says we see through a glass dimly, but then we will see him face to face. You'll behold him in his glory. All those that you have loved that have gone ahead of you and who have known him, you will see again. And all the tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more pain, no more crying, no more death. It'll probably all make sense then at least to the point that we need to understand. I mentioned before, I, I, I'm confident you won't get to heaven and start asking God a bunch of questions. I'm confident you'll get to heaven and you'll just be in such awe that you'll just be overwhelmed with thankfulness that you are there. And see, this is the hope of man, the hope of eternity. That the maker of heaven and earth made you for the purpose that you would dwell with him eternally. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you chose to create us. That you love us. That your goodness is upon us. That you see all things. You do see our bondages. And you want to set the captives free. If that's you, if you've got some bondage that you think is hidden, it's not. God knows, probably others know. In his love, he will reveal it, even publicly if necessary, to bring you to repentance. If that's you today, I would confess it before the Lord. And I would confess it to someone you can trust that you would be set free.
I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, to conclude this service, we have a special guest, Kirsten, if you'll come, who's going to share with us. This is Kirsten Hutchinson. She is a missionary in Zimbabwe, and she has been associated with Celebration Church. That is, we've been supporting her in her missions work. We were talking last night for, we think, around 20 years, something like that. So it's been a long-term relationship. So first of all, we're glad to have you here, and then I'll ask you if you would describe a little bit about your work there in Zimbabwe. Well, thank you very much for letting me come and take a little bit of your time. Um, first of all, I want to greet you uh, from the, your brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I worship and work and fellowship. And so they always ask me, tell those, thank you for those who are in the United States who support you, uh, thank you, and tell them that uh, they, they are with us in spirit. And so I want to bring you their greetings and, um, and just let you know that uh, the lovely spirit of God put, makes us together, binds us together. And so, yes, my name is Kirsten Hutchinson. I am a physician assistant. I'm from Lisbethan, and so I'm just from down the road. And I went to King College, so I'm just a local girl. Uh, so just in case you think missions is for somebody else, I want to tell you, no, it's for you. If you're a believer, missions is for you. Whatever it looks like, it's for you. Also, I, so the Lord called me, my mission is to Zimbabwe, and that's in southern Africa. And as a physician assistant, uh, I'm not a pastor, Bible teacher. Yes, God can use whatever gifts God has given you are the gifts he expects you to use to build his kingdom. So God gave me gifts of, of being a PA. And so I work at Karanda Mission Hospital. I work with TEAM, which is the Evangelical Alliance Mission. And we have been partners for over 20 years. And so I want to thank you for that. And so, yes, the Lord is at work. So I work in a hospital. I do regular hospital things, uh, you know, do rounds and see patients and uh, diagnose people, just like a physician assistant uh, does here. And also, I get to pray with my patients. Uh, you might not be able to do that in the United States, in the Christian United States, but you can do that in pagan Zimbabwe. Isn't that amazing? And also the Lord has given me a ministry to widows and orphans. And so that is uh, just a lovely part. That's kind of, I do on my tea time and lunch time and other times. Um, but that also is very rewarding to me because I see the difference that it makes. Um, you guys, because of you, I can pay school fees so that an orphan can go to school. Do you know you have to pay to go to school? Yeah. You know, mostly, most of my kids that are in my rural, I live in rural Zimbabwe, so not in the big city. Big city's different. I don't live in the New York City of Zimbabwe. I live in Carter County of Zimbabwe, <laughs> okay, and, which I like because, ugh, I wouldn't want to be in the big city. So my kids, uh, they live, it's very rural. There's no water in the houses, no electricity. You use a latrine, kind of like, life here maybe 100 years ago you know probably some of you live up some of these hollers like that and so that's where I am and I'm, I'm very blessed to be there and that's the ministry that the Lord has called me to well tell us about some of the 
challenges, the more difficult things you've encountered over the years in doing ministry there? Yes, um, the challenges, they are many. Um, and so, yes, in healthcare, I come up against death frequently. There are some days that I'm sorry, you have prostate cancer. I can't fix it. You're going to die. Sorry, you have osteosarcoma, young child with a knee, uh, a big swollen mass on your knee. You have that, that cancer is probably going to kill you. Sorry, you have arthritis. We can't do knee replacements and hip replacements very easily. Sorry, you have whatever. And so it's challenging when those days come, when I, when I really don't have any hope in, in medicine. There is hope in medicine, but it's not ultimate. And so that's what, when, those are the days when I have the privilege of saying, you know, you're going to die. Did you, did you guys know that? Americans sometimes, they, they pretend that they're never, never going to die. Each of us is going to die. And, and we have to be prepared for that. And so I have the great opportunity to offer spiritual life in Christ. When I, yes, I give medicines. Yes, I do logical and medical things to help people's lives be better. But to do that without the love and word and name of Jesus Christ, that's incomplete. And so on those days when I had the challenges, I had the opportunity to share the gospel as well with my patients. And tragedy and poverty and sickness is, and tragedy, it's, just, it's there to a greater extent than here. But the tragedy that's in this country is sometimes a little bit different. Mm -hmm. The poverty in this country is sometimes a little bit different. It's still there. And so those are my challenges. Well, then, if we go to the other side, what would you say have been the greatest blessings of serving there for such a long time? I don't know that there are so many missionaries who stay in one place with such a faithful, consistent journey for such a long time as you have. So what's been unique about that in terms of the blessings? Yes. Oh, the blessings are definitely there. Yes, we can't, we can't focus just on the negatives. They're there. We have to respect them. We have to identify them, just like your spiritual issues. We have to identify them. Then we add the, but God. We, as believers, we always get to have the, but God. But God is building his kingdom in Zimbabwe. But God went in at a hospital. Can you imagine? How many of you have had cataract surgery? It's usually, yeah. Um, and so imagine that, that you had a cataract and you could not see out of that eye. And then you go to Karanda Hospital and there's somebody that can do surgery on your eye. And you can literally, I was blind, but now I see physically. And then if you find, if you are exposed to Jesus Christ, then you get that, that spiritual blindness healed too. How amazing. And so, you know, healthcare, it brings, you know, it's an excellent tool to bring physical life. When you have patients, children who come in comatose from cerebral malaria, and you get to see them wake up and, and live, that's miraculous. When you have somebody who has diabetes, hypertension, stroke, you know, the usual things. 
and you get to do something that alleviates some of the pain, some of the suffering, that gives them physical life. That's amazing. And we have an AWANA program. We have a, a, our, the ministry of the hospital is very broad. So yes, I see patients. But then we have a WANA program, which is a uh, Bible program for primary school. And the Lord has opened the door to that, for that to be rolled out in all the schools in our district and in our province, which is our state. Can you believe that? What a miracle. We, have, we live in a rural area. We have a goat project. We have a lot of orphans because of HIV. And we have a goat project. Well, what does a goat do? A goat can sometimes bring life. Because you can milk a goat, and if you are an orphan whose mother has died, and you can't afford $8 a tin of, of formula, you have a goat that you can milk. And that child can live. And then that goat grows up, and then that goat has more goats, and now you have meat as well. And so goats can build the wealth of a family. We have, we train pastors. We have at once a month, anybody who considers themselves a pastor can come and we have, it's just like the weekend, we have pastor training. And so all of these people that consider themselves called by God and they're prophets and they think they're speaking for God can actually come and read the word of God. And find out what God has really said. That's amazing. And so these are the ministries that the Lord is doing through in Karanda and through, through you. You are the partners. And so your partnership is critical. And at this point, I'm going to challenge you to continue your partnership. Look at the gray hair. I'm not going to be there forever. God, is, God needs to, 2 Timothy 2. Train up those. You need to teach those who can also teach others. Okay? I'm teaching you. I need you guys to train others, to bring your children, yourself, your children, your grandchildren, so that they will continue to build the kingdom of God. And so right now, a lot of our missionaries, at, at, in, I have about six years left, Lord willing, and uh, of service on the field, and, and most of the missionaries that I'm working with, have, this generation has retired. We need not to, to drop the ball and just say, okay, bye-bye. We need to continue partnering, but maybe not like a parent and child, but like adult-adult. And to facilitate, the church in the United States needs to facilitate the body of Christ in these other countries. You don't have to go and tell them, you know, a lot of the times, you don't have to go and tell them to become a Christian. They're already Christians. But you do need to partner with them, like an adult adult, and facilitate what the Lord is doing in them so that the Lord will continue to build his kingdom. So I challenge you to think of your partnership in missions, maybe with a little different perspective. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing today and for your faithful ministry for all of these years. Kirsten has a table in the lobby. You might want to stop by and talk with her more after the service. You might want to support her work, get involved in some way. But thank you so much for coming today. Well, thank you for this opportunity.
We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. 